So Father, thank you for this morning. Pray that you would help us to, to focus and not be distracted. Lord, again, I pray that you would just meet us where we're at and give us exactly what we need for this morning. I pray that you give us clarity and understanding of what this scripture means, what these verses mean, what your intended words mean, that we wouldn't take it out of context. Lord, that we would not be led by emotions, that we would not be led by experiences, but Lord, that we would be led by your truth, which is in this word. And I pray that you'd give us understanding uh, through your Holy Spirit. So we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 17, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 to give us a little context. But this is what we studied last week, um, two things that Jesus uh, warns his disciples of and challenges his disciples. And that's one of the things that I want to make very clear as we study through today, that Jesus starts off in verse 1 speaking to a certain select group of people. Okay? It's important that we know the audience of who Jesus is speaking to to get better clarity and understanding. Correct? We talked about this last week. So in verse 1, it says, He said to his disciples. What makes a person a disciple of Jesus? Yeah, I guess if he says so, sure, because he's God. But what about for us today? He's not, Jesus is not over here saying, you're a disciple, you're not a disciple. It's, yeah, well, it's faith. It's not accepting him in your heart. It's believing in him, okay? We've got to understand that. It's faith in Jesus Christ, which makes us born again, which brings us into the family of God, which makes us a servant of God and makes us a disciple of him. We, we become learners of our master, of our teacher, right? So it's not, it's not a title for everyone, although it's a title that is um, available to everyone. It's just some people don't submit to that title because they don't want to believe in Jesus, but they would rather reject Jesus. And so he's not speaking to a general population here. Okay? He's speaking specifically to his disciples, and he says, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. We talked about this last week. Jesus warns us, you're, there's going to be instances in your life where people will sin against you, where wrong will come against you. Whether it's fair or not, doesn't matter. He says, just be aware that it will come. But he says, woe to the one who causes it. Woe to the one that gives it. Okay, what's that woe? He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. And we talked about last week, the little ones was a reference to not people who are short, not necessarily just children, but to those who are, are weak or new to the faith, right? I mean, the Bible describes those who are, are recently born again, they're described as, as babes, as babies, right? But then, you know, as you start to develop in your relationship with Christ, just like you do, I mean, think about it. Let's just think about the terminology. To be born again, right, means that there is a, a new birth, Right? And when you are born in a physical sense, every year on that day, you celebrate the day you were born. Right? And every year is a year more. Right? So if you're 12 years old, you were born 12 years ago. Obviously makes sense. So you start to develop. You start to grow. Right? You get taller. You get more mature sometimes. You, know, you, you get more knowledge. All these things. In the same sense, spiritually, when we're born again, you know, we, we almost start off like we're babies again. Right? Even though I might be in a 30-year-old body, 
I'm, I'm starting off as a baby if that's when I got born again. And so we then start to grow. We start to develop. We start to mature in, in our understanding and in our faith, right? And he says to those, woe to those who are more mature in the faith. Remember, because he's speaking to disciples, not just anyone. He says, if you bring an offense against a little one, if you cause somebody who is weaker in the faith than you to stumble into sin, he says, be aware of that. He says, woe to you to whom through offenses come. So he warns us of that, but then he tells us when these do come, he says, not if they come, but when they come, he says, take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you, because you will have a friend, you will have a family member, you will have a person in the church that maybe you're not even close to, and they will sin against you. Then Jesus here gives us a, an equation, right? This is what is supposed to happen to equal this, okay? He says, when they sin against you, this is your responsibility, you rebuke them, okay? And I'll I would encourage you maybe to go listen to last week's teaching. I don't know if it's up on Spotify or app, but go back at some point, listen to that teaching, because I explain more in depth what it means to rebuke. It's not just going up to the person, slapping them in the face, and telling them they're a horrible person, and that you did this miserable, horrible thing, right? That in no way does Jesus ever tell us that's how we are to do things. He says to, to go to someone in the spirit of gentleness to restore them, right? In love, Right? And oftentimes, we talked about this last week, we mistake love for being silent. Right? Well, maybe I shouldn't say something to them because it's going to offend them. It's going to hurt them. You know, it's better to just love them from a distance and not say anything. Well, that's not love, the Bible tells us. It says open rebuke is better than love concealed. Right? If you're doing something wrong or if you've done something wrong, it's good to tell that person so they can repent of it so that you can forgive them so that the relationship can be restored. Because if we decide to sweep everything under the rug, well, bitterness is starting to build up in your heart, whether you think it or not, right? You may think, oh, I'm not going to be bitter. Well, give it time. Something else will happen. They'll do something else. You'll do something. Some type of memory will pop up. And then all of a sudden, bitterness, resentment, anger, hatred, whatever it is, all these descriptive words of something that's not of Christ, that's not of a Christian, will start to develop within us. And so Jesus gives us this equation that when they sin against you, rebuke them, and if he repents, forgive him. I mean, that, that's what happens. You sin against me, I rebuke you, you take that rebuke, and you repent, and when you repent, I forgive you. Those are all must. They must happen, right? That's what brings the restoration to that relationship. And then we ended last week, remember this, that just because someone repents and you forgives, it doesn't equate to the same thing as trust. Remember this? Because forgiveness is, is letting go of, of something, right? It's, it's, it's not holding them to anything. It's, it's love, right? Because love doesn't keep any record of wrong, correct? How do we know that? Because God tells us in his word, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love keeps no record of wrong. So we forgive, but there are boundaries, right? There is wisdom. There is discernment that God gives us that if we get to verse 4, right, where Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day he returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. If you rebuke him seven times, and he repents seven times, then you forgive seven times. It's as easy as that. That's the equation. 
right? But maybe after the seventh, eighth, 148th time, you're like, I will forgive you because that's what's necessary. And that's what God calls me to do, right? But it doesn't mean I have to trust you, right? Because you haven't proven yourself faithful yet in that regard. Do we understand this? We talked about this last week. Go ahead and listen to it if you can. So that sounds hard, right? That sounds hard. Somebody messes with you uh, seven times in a day. We'll just take this exact measurement. Seven times in a day, and you've got to forgive them seven times. That's hard. How do we do it? All right, look at verse 5. This is where we're going. We're going to be in verses 5 through 10 this morning. It says, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. <laughs> All right, increase our faith. They could have said this really for anything, but they say it here that they know one of the hardest things to do is to forgive someone. And maybe not just the first time, but the seventh time. And so they ask of the Lord that he would increase their faith. Imagine that. that It's hard to forgive, but it takes faith to forgive. You know, sometimes we like to think faith has to do with miracles, like big, grand expressions of things, you know, like, like walking on water right, or, you know, moving mountains, or causing a mulberry tree to go be planted in the sea. You're like, what are you talking about? We'll get there in a second. We think that's what faith, like, looks like, how it's displayed. But what we fail to realize is that sometimes great faith is, is seen just in forgiveness. Think about that. It, we think, yeah, well, faith is going to be, you know, when I got to go through this horrific thing, and I've got to keep strong, and I got to do this well, maybe that's not the display of faith that, that Christ is really searching from us. Maybe it's in the everyday things as Christians. Something as simple, I say simple, even though it's hard, as forgiveness. And so let's go ahead and read verses 6 through 10. And we'll, we'll break this down. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say... We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So, in the, in the context of this, let's understand this, that there's these offenses that come. When they come, there's an equation that we have to go about in regards to us as Christians amongst us is that we rebuke them. A Christian will repent, okay? I mean, that's, that's what we do. If we have the Spirit of God in us, you will be convicted and you will repent. And then as the other Christian who has been offended, you are the one who is supposed to forgive. That's what we do. That's the Spirit of God in us. We forgive. Okay? That is the equation. It brings about um, reconciliation. Right? But sometimes it can be hard. And that's when the disciples, the apostles are like, okay, God, you need to increase our faith. And God says this. He says, if you have faith as a mustard seed. Do you guys know how big a mustard seed is? Yeah? Have you guys heard this section before in regards to the mustard seed? Because I think sometimes we think of the other section 
where Jesus says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can do what? You can move mountains, right? Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen anyone move a mountain or pull up a, a, a mulberry tree and have it planted in, in the ocean? No? Wait, somebody said yes? Okay, obviously we all know the answer is no. None of us have seen that, okay? So then the question is, is, if that's what Jesus says we can do with our faith, does that mean nobody really has faith? Or that nobody has great faith? Because nobody has ever moved a mountain or pulled up a mulberry tree? And first of all, I'm like, I don't even know where a mulberry tree is, right? But we, we've seen mountains. I can't, even, I can't even move, you know, a piece of dirt, a piece of sand, right, with my faith. And I think we need to understand this, is when Jesus says something like that, it's not to be taken so literal in the sense that God wants you to move mountains with your faith. Because I would challenge you with this. Why would you? <laughs> right? Like, why, why would you want to move the mountain? There's no purpose in it. Right? Like, there, there's a reason that we use our faith, and it's not to move mountains. Jesus is giving us an example of not, not even so much the amount of faith we have, but he's saying even with the little amount of faith that you have, in the right object, in the right person, can do amazing things. Something as amazing to us would be moving a mountain, right? But in the, in the realm of where our faith is used, maybe it's something as amazing as forgiving someone. To you and I, we read that in Scripture, and we're like, that doesn't sound that amazing. Well, it takes just as much faith to do something as crazy as forgiving someone as it would to, to move mountains. And so again, he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, something that is, a mustard seed is, is really small, Really, really small. It's not the smallest of all the seeds, but it's a really, really, really tiny seed. So then we get into the question, okay, well, what is faith? Right? What is faith? I mean, we, we see it all the time. We read it all the time. We, you probably heard me say it, that we are born again. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith alone and not of worse, lest anyone should boast, right? So all throughout Scripture, it gives us, Two words that are, are pretty much synonymous. Two words that we are saved by alone. That's faith and belief. Okay? I would equate them to as the same word. So what do those words mean? What kind of faith are we talking about? So in its simplest understanding, it basically means this. It means to trust. To trust. And here's the catch. We all have faith. Everyone has faith. Right? I mean, everyone has, has faith in the, the brakes of their car, right? If you didn't, you probably wouldn't be driving your car or getting in the car that your parents are driving or even being on the road trusting that someone else's brakes are working, right? You, when you sat in the chair this morning, you trusted that it would stay up when you sat in it, right? Yeah, you probably didn't even think of it, right? We all have, have faith in something, even if we consider, you know, atheists and agnostics and, and, and whoever, even different religions, they're placing a faith in something, right? And so we are too. But the importance is the object of that faith. Like, what are you trusting? Right? So, like, I can say I have faith. I have faith to sit in this chair. But just because I had faith to sit in the chair and I exemplified that faith by actually sitting in it, 
Does that mean I'm going to heaven and now my sins are forgiven? I had faith. It says that I'm saved by grace through faith alone. I had faith. Why aren't, why aren't I saved now? Why aren't I receiving grace? Because I'm not putting my, my trust into the right object. Correct? I'm not, I'm not putting my, I shouldn't be putting my faith into a chair or anything else, but into the one true living God. And that's Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. So it's important that we have a trust, yes, but a right trust in the right person, and that's Jesus Christ. And more often than not, we have a trust in our own selves, and what we start to realize as Christians is that we no longer trust ourselves, but we put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the cool thing, guys, is that this, this trust, this faith, it's not blind. It's not just some Hail Mary that, man, I hope, I hope I got this one right. We'll find out when I get to heaven, when I die, if... If I pick the right religion, you know, that, that's not the case here. Because what we see throughout Scripture is that it is a 100% factual and real. And that faith even of itself is evidence of everything that we believe. Isn't that crazy? Look at this. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Spurgeon says this, He says, the eye cannot see itself. Did you ever see your own eye? In a mirror, you may have done so, but that was only a reflection of it. And you may, in like manner, see the evidence of your faith, but you cannot look at the faith itself. Faith looks away from itself to the object of faith, even to Christ. It's who we place our trust in. And there's so much evidence for Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Hebrews, again, says um, faith is a substance of things hoped for, right? So in this life that we live, we have different senses. We have a physical eyesight, right? It gives us evidence to the, the physical, tangible things of this material world, where faith is this sense that gives us evidence of the invisible spiritual world. The writer of Hebrews continues on in that verse, and he says, well, the things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, if you have the substance before you, or if you can see it, there is no use for faith. Faith is needed for what we cannot see, what we cannot touch. So even though we have not seen God, that does not mean that he does not exist, right? I mean, we can use the example of wind. Nobody's ever seen wind, but nobody would be here arguing that wind is not real, right? In the same way, we have seen the effects of God. We have seen the evidence of God. We've seen the, the prophecies come to life, we have seen Jesus, who is an actual, literal, historical figure. We've talked about this before, right? So faith is not a bare belief or an intellectual understanding. It's a willingness to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to the right object, the right person, which is Jesus Christ. And so again, Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, it's something that's that's very, very small. He says, basically implying that it doesn't take much faith to do something as spectacular as commanding a mulberry tree to uproot itself because mulberry trees actually had roots that were really, really extraordinarily strong and that they could possibly be rooted for up to 600 years. So he's saying, you know, this doesn't sound as miraculous and crazy as moving mountains, but it is. He's saying it just needs a little bit of faith in the right direction upon the right person and you can do something as crazy as this. Which means that you have the ability 
to do something as crazy as forgive someone seven times in seven days if they repent of their sins. You can. You can do that. You have the ability through faith. It doesn't take a lot of faith to do something powerful. Because remember, it's who we have our faith in. And isn't he the most powerful? I don't even know how to explain it. Isn't he the most powerful? Isn't he the description of power? Doesn't every other type of power even come from him and stem from him? Yeah, I mean, he is the literal power source. Everything. I mean, think of the sun, right? I mean, we think of the sun as the most powerful thing, the thing that we can generate the most power from. God created that by speaking it into existence. And there's more than just the sun that we can see from our eye level. There's more stars and planets out there that have the power that we think. And so when we place our faith, even though it's a tiny little bit of faith in the right object, it can do powerful things because he is powerful. It's not a matter of, oh, wow, wow, you know, Sarah had so much faith today. No, Sarah trusted in the right person. I got like three Sarahs over here, right? Or, oh my gosh, Patrick, like, he had no faith, right? Like, well, no. That's, it's not a matter of the amount of faith that we had. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trusting in the right person. You know, I think of Peter when he walked out on water. I mean, he simply trusted in Jesus. Was it anything of Peter that made him have the ability to walk on water? Or was it his ability to trust in the right person? Right? So, kept his eyes on Jesus, and he walked on water. So Jesus now, he's, he's spoken to his disciples, right? Because again, that's the context here, about the great works that are possible by faith, right? And now we need to remember that great works aren't always defined as moving mountains, right? It can be something as simple as forgiving others. Okay? The Christian duties that, are resp- that we're responsible for, that take faith to do. And now here in the next couple of verses, Jesus adds words meant to work against the pride that can often come from us when we are used by God, right? Peter walking on water, looking back at the guys, being like, look at me. Look how awesome I am. I'm walking on water, right? When in actuality, like, it wasn't anything of Peter, right? And we found it out really quickly. Once he took his eyes off, off Jesus, he started to sink. So we need to understand when we, when we have the ability to do these things, it's because of God and the arrogance and the pride should be squashed in understanding that it's nothing of us. Because we need to understand our position. Okay, We need to understand our title. And that's where we get these next verses, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And, and I'm going to try and help you understand this a little bit, because I think if you read this out of context, if you read this with some type of experience in your mind, or if you read this emotionally, you're going to think God is mean. God is, is such a tyrant. Like this I, this is not the God I want to want to serve. Understand this, that this is not this illustration that Jesus gives here is not a picture of God's character. It's a picture of position and title. Okay, and I think when we understand our position to God, it gives us a better, clear understanding. And also understand this, that if you are not born again, this sounds very mean. Okay, but when you are born again. 
when you've experienced the grace of God, you understand your position and you understand that you have no say in anything and that whatever God does and whatever he decides, it's allowed, right? And you have to submit to it. But remember, when we read the entirety of scripture, we understand that God's not a tyrant, that he's not a slave driver, that although our position may be a servant and it may be a slave, he doesn't treat us as slaves, right? He treats us as what? Sons and daughters, that we receive the inheritance of a good father and a good God. But we got to remember in the context of this that we have to have the mindset and the understanding that no matter what, he is still God, he is still powerful, he is still holy, he's still almighty, and I am still absolutely nothing. And I have absolutely earned nothing. I deserve nothing. Actually, I deserve more than nothing. What is ever less and worse than nothing, that's what I deserve. So understand that when we read this. So Jesus says this, Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will come to him when he has come in from the field, uh, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are, you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to So again, this is not about the character of God. This is not about the lack of love or his love or whatever we want to describe. This is about authority, position, titles. This is who we are in comparison to God, right? This has, again, nothing to do with him being unloving, uncompassionate, unrelatable. No, he is still all those things. And so, in verse 7, let me read this again. It says, which of you having a servant, plowing or tending sheep? Now, this word servant here, sometimes we, we use the word doulos, which is like a bond servant. Um, but this word is used more to describe a, a literal slave. Um, and in this description here, probably the only slave on a small farm, right? A slave who not only works in the field, we see, but also has to come home and do the household chores. Okay. Now, when we read this, it's really important that we take any of the connotations or the whatever we think of slavery, we got to understand it in this context and not bring those outside uh, misconceptions in here. Okay? So, uh, Jesus often describes us as his disciples as slaves. Right? You want to be the greatest of all? What does he say? Yeah. To who? No, not, no. That's the, that's the key. I'm, I'm not a slave to you. I'm not a servant to you in that sense. Like, I will serve you, yes. But all of us, if we're born again, we become slaves to God. Because here's the catch. You're like, I don't like that. Well, you know what? Before you were a slave to God, you were a slave to something else. Everyone is a slave to someone at any point in life. And so before God, Scripture says I was a slave to Satan to do his will. I mean, 1 John even makes it pretty clear that those who aren't of God, they're under the sway of the wicked one. So you become a slave to Satan. 
And the things that are of Satan, we, we, we can think of death, we can think of sin. We're slaves to those things. When, when I'm not born again, when I have not been redeemed, when there has been no power cast over sin, well, I'm a slave to sin. I'm a slave to Satan. Right? I do what he wants me to do. Then you can say all you want that I, I'm not or I don't. Well, the truth is the truth, and you can't change that based on your lack of understanding or submission to the truth. It is what it is. And so I have no problem being a slave to God because I once was a slave to someone who was a tyrant, who was out to steal, kill, and destroy, who did not show love or compassion or relatability. But no, no longer that, but God has freed me from that, and now I am a child of God. I'm a slave to him, and it's a good thing because he is a good master, right? He's a good master. But again, that's not really what we're talking about here. We're, we're, gonna, we're talking about position, understanding that, that he is God first and foremost. And, and, and like the clay and the potter, like how can the clay say anything to the potter? I often wonder who are we to ever question God or say anything to him, right? He knows all things. He is, I mean, I couldn't describe it anymore. I, and I think you understand this. I'm not talking to five-year-olds. You understand that he is the creator of all things, He's the most powerful being that any other type of power comes from him. We talked about this before. It's not like we see in the movies when you see, you know, Superman or who's the most powerful, like, superhero we've seen in the movie? Captain Marvel. Spider-Man, get out of here with that. We all agree that he is not, yeah, like, whoever it is, right, um, Thor. Who was the strongest Avenger? Okay. All right. Shh. We don't have to agree. Whoever you want to decide, right? Then you've got, um, who's the guy with the butt chin? What's his name again? Thanos. Yeah. Thanos. So you got him and he's like super powerful. And like, there's this, you know, there's this scale that like, you know, they, they fight against each other and it's like, one barely beats the other, right? Do you guys see that in movies? You see it with Superman. You see it with every individual movie that one barely beats the other, that, that sometimes the villain starts to win and has more power and strength. That is not, that is not a good picture and description of God, right? In, in any type of other power or evil or wickedness, it's not like Satan's got the upper hand and you know, he's got a little bit of power to kind of go up against God. That's not it at all. I mean, think about it. God created Satan. God, God created everything. And again, remember, he creates just from his, his breath, from something that he's spoken into existence. And it's not like we see in the movies either where the creation can become more powerful than the creator. That's, that, that doesn't make any sense. That's not logical. That's just good entertainment. Okay? So Satan's not down in hell, you know, gaining power, you know, day by day to overtake God. That's not, that's not the case. That's not at all. Satan's already doomed. He's already lost. He has a little bit of power that God gave him. And again, it's from God. And so when we understand that aspect of who God is in comparison to everything and everyone, who are we to question anything? But then we, then we get the rest of Scripture that, again, God is not just some tyrant, right? But he's actually loving, 
and he's compassionate, and he's intentional, and then he cares for every single person, and he loves every single person, and he wishes that none should perish, that he wants everyone at some point to be with him. And again, if he were a tyrant, he would never give us free will to reject him, right? He would just force us to love him. He would force us to serve him. But you here today have the opportunity to walk out these doors and do what you want. You can walk out here and say, that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. And do you know why? Because God loves you and he gave you the free will to choose that. If he didn't love you, right, he would have forced you to do things. But he loves us. He gives us free will so that we can love him in return which is a true type of love, right? And he sent his only begotten son so that we would not be the person that would perish, but that we would have the opportunity to believe and trust in him. And so he says, again, which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? No, like if you are a servant, you serve, you wait till it's your time to eat. You don't, the master's not going to say, okay, yeah, come eat. No, you're not done serving yet. He says, prepare something for my supper. Your job is to serve. Continue serving. Gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk. And afterward, you will eat and drink. The point here is that whether it's fair or not, just not, again, God is just so everything he does is fair so to us we might be questioning is this fair or not either way doesn't matter the slave was expected to work in the fields and fix the food that was his duty the master wasn't there to serve the slave but the slave to serve the master remember we are submissive to jesus we serve him we have no right to go to him and tell him to do anything for us. Do we understand that? To, to understand that position. Do we have the capability of doing that? Yes, we can boldly come to the throne of, of grace. We can ask God of things. He is a good father, right? But we need to understand our position that we cannot make him do anything, that we can't tell him to do anything. And, and who are we to even think that we could? How many of you guys have uh, have a job or have had a job in your life? Have you basically, you've had an employer. Okay. This is really easy to talk to because with you guys, because I'm sure based on your age, whatever job that you took, you probably took one of the lowest positions. And I'm pretty sure that when you walked into that job, that you didn't start demanding things and you didn't start acting like you were the owner of the business, Right. You didn't question things. Like, you probably had no idea what you were doing. You were probably super intimidated, and you just said, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. That's the position we should have. And I think if we were to think that we have any other type of position, we would be like the new person at the job who walks in like we own the place. And everyone would look at us like, what? Know your place. Know your role. And our place and our role is servants and slaves of God. But again, we serve a good master. In verse 9, Jesus says, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? 
I think not. <laughs> I love that. It's like, I look at it from my, my relationship with my wife, right? Sometimes I'll get like super excited that I, I like did the dishes and then like I'm waiting for her to like notice that I did the dishes, right? And I'm waiting for her to like be excited that I did the dishes. And then I'm waiting for her to like notice and be excited and then say something to me like, wow, Jeffrey, thank you so much. And then, and then nothing happens. And I'm like, did you, did you not notice? She's like, yeah. I mean, she's like, what do you want me to do? Like, good job for doing what you're supposed to do, right? Like, what do you want me to do to like praise you for it? She's like, I do it every single day, 10 times a day. And here I am, I've done it once and I'm seeking some type of praise. And I'm like, no, that's my duty. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? When, when you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do, don't be looking for some type of praise or recognition for it. Like who, again, you walk into your job on the first day and you, you cook the fries, you're at McDonald's, whatever, and you sit there and you wait for your boss to praise you and it's like, no, your boss isn't there to praise you. Like, you're, you're going to get paid. That's good enough, right? Like, do your job. That's it. Know your role and do your job. And again, this, this is understanding from this position. It's not, an, it's not for us to think that God is not out there not watching us and thankful and whatever this. Again, I'm like, he doesn't even have to be thankful because he's done everything, right? I mean, he's the one that died for your sins. He's the one that's created you. He's the one that loves you. He's the one that's empowered you. He's the one that's given you his Holy Spirit. And like, you're indebted to him. We're indebted to him. And our role is to serve the master. The master does not owe the servant anything for simply serving like he's supposed to do. But we don't like that because we're Americans, right? We've grown up entitled, okay? I'm talking about Americans. I'm not talking about skin color. I'm not talking about, you know, wealth. I'm talking about Americans, okay? And whether you were born somewhere else and you moved here, you understand the culture of Americans, Okay? that we are the most entitled people in the world, right? That the customer's always right. And now there's cases where that is true, okay? But we have bred this sense of entitlement. We have bred this sense of entitlement within ourselves, that it's been cultivated in our culture, that I'm always deserving of this, I'm always deserving of that. I mean, goodness, go to a college campus and you'll find this out that I deserve everything. And what we fail to realize is that sometimes that type of mentality that we have as Americans has seeped into the, the spiritual things, has seeped into the way that we understand our role with Christ, that we sometimes think, think that we're entitled to things when it comes to Jesus. And we need to understand that's not the case. We are, if you want what you deserve, <laughs> you would not get anything good. You would get the complete opposite. If you want what you're entitled to, well, remember what we're entitled to. Death and separation from God, right? Torment and hell for eternity. That's what we're entitled to. So it's, it's a privilege to be a servant and a slave to God. I mean, you go ahead and read Psalm chapter 84 sometime. And that psalmist, not now, that psalmist basically describes that I would rather be, I forget what it was, I think it's a bird in the, in the, uh, in the courts, in the temple of God, than to be anywhere else. He says, better, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You guys know that song. That's where it comes from. 
Like I would rather be a fly on the wall in the presence of God because he's so good. I would rather be a, a slave to him than to be free away from him. That's how good of a master he is. But again, we've got to remember our role is that we are slaves, we are servants to him. He goes on, ends in verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. <laughs> Just say, we're unprofitable servants. We are unprofitable. In a sense, we're, we're unworthy. There's no necessity. Good for nothing. Is that the description of who we are? No. God sees value in us. He loves us. He considers us the, the pearl of great price. Remember that. He values us so much that he died for us. But from our point of view, to think that we are anything greater than we are is deception, is a lie. It truly is. Because believe it or not, you are replaceable. I am replaceable. Pastor Kevin is replaceable. He really is. You, th you think that you can't be replaced? I'm not talking about cloning. I'm talking about like the, the type of position that you have. I think, you know, based on my, my status and my position that I'm some great person. No, God will, God will raise someone up. God will easily cut down that pride and raise someone up who will simply serve him. To think that we are unprofitable servants. He says, we have done what was our duty to do. And again, we try to find <laughs> so much you know, praise and recognition for the things that we do, whether it's from people. And understand this, you will never receive that from people. And even if you do, it like, doesn't add up to anything. It doesn't add any value to your life. Like God tells us to not be people pleasers, right? And then in the end, too, when it comes comes to God, that we, we shouldn't be out here trying to, to seek this praise from God because it's the opposite. We're to praise him, right? And so I shouldn't be grumbling and complaining, you know, God, you, you haven't praised me for doing this. No, it's your duty to serve him because he is God. And if you don't, rec if you don't understand that, then you don't recognize that he's God. And here's the kicker, too, is that God does recognize and you will be rewarded for your work, for your service. You will. Isn't that crazy? But we're not to have that mentality of this is what I deserve, this is what I'm entitled to. When we get to heaven, you will earn things. There's crowns that you can earn. There's five different crowns that you can earn based on what you do here on this earth. But it simply comes from doing our duty, from being servants to him. He doesn't owe us anything. We owe us, we owe him everything. And so again, you might be thinking, gosh, this is, this is not what I want to hear today. But remember, if, to reconcile it this way, because we had this issue back in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, when Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of me, if you want to be a disciple, well, he says, let the dead, the, remember the guy that wanted to go bury his father? And Jesus is like, no, let the dead bury the dead. Remember when the guy said, I want to follow you, and he says, well, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and the guy didn't want to do it. You remember the, the guy, the rich young ruler, that wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, well, go sell all your things and then come back. And then he, he went away, 
because he didn't want to sell his things because he was rich, right? And we think, and then there was one other example, I can't remember what it was, but here we were thinking at that time that Jesus is like so demanding. Like that, that seems so uncomfortable. And what we find out is we lack an understanding of who God is. We always want to think that God is love, right? Like that is, that is what we want because it brings the comfortable Christianity. And God is love. I mean, the Bible clearly says God is love. But the Bible also clearly states that he's more than just love. Do you know the one attribute that he is praised the most for in worship in heaven and the one attribute that is seen throughout Scripture more than any other attribute? What is it? Huh? No. I like it, but no. Holiness. That God is holy. That there are angels in heaven right now singing, holy, holy, holy. Not loving, loving, loving. Does that mean he's not loving? No, he's loving. He's the most love. He, he is, God is love. I want you to understand that. But he's holy. And we forget that. He's God. He's the king of kings. He died for you. He laid down his life for you. The creator laying down his life for the creation who despised him, who hated him, who ripped his beard, who didn't even recognize him, who didn't honor him. He is the Lord of lords. He's the creator of everything, the universe, everything that you have ever seen, even the things that you don't even see. He is the head of the church. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the first. He's last. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He's a conqueror, overcomer. He's the lamb of God. He's risen from the dead. He's the bright and morning star. And by his name, no one else under heaven, among men, can be saved. Does that put into perspective? That's not even a full description of everything that God is. But it helps us put into perspective of who he is compared to us. And I think when when we finally come to the realization he is who he is and we are who we are, it helps us better reconcile things like this. But again, don't take one attribute of God and run with it. He has many attributes, right? He's holy and he's loving. He's loving and he's holy, right? One doesn't negate the other. One is not lesser than the other. Just because God is loving doesn't mean he's any less holy. I mean, think about it this way. The, the reason that he died for us, right, is because he loved us and because he was holy. Because he was holy, we were separated from him. Because we're unholy. And it's not like Jesus all of a sudden decided one here. It's not like he all of a sudden decided when we sin that like, oh, you're unholy. You can't be in my presence. No, it's, I was teaching my son this yesterday. Because um, we were, we, we just read um, Exodus 19 where God warns the people to not touch the mountain when he comes to speak to them when he basically, right before he gives the Ten Commandments. And I asked my son, because I, I know we all have these questions. I said, I said, Zeke, does that sound like God is being mean when he says, if you touch that mountain, you will die? Think of the guy that touched the Ark of the Covenant when it was, it was about to, to fall on the ground. Remember this? And he died immediately. And so I'm challenging my nine-year-old who is, is just contemplating things, right? Just as you are. That doesn't sound like a loving God. 
And so I ask him, how, how do we reconcile that? How do we, because we know he's loving, but that doesn't sound loving. Because we forget that he's holy. And so it's not a rule that God came up with that like, well, don't touch that because I'm a tyrant and I just came up with this rule and I want to see if you can obey it. No, it's, it's, it's like natural law. Like if you drop something from the Empire State Building, what's going to happen? Okay, so something with weight, okay, obviously not a balloon. You drop a penny, what's it going to do? It's going to fall. Why? Because of what? That's the law of nature, right? It, it didn't just, that, it is what it is. It's just logic, okay? I told him, like, you cannot have light and darkness in the same room. You cannot have God who is holy and man who is unholy together, so when God says, don't touch the mountain, it's love because God's on the mountain in some type of way has received that type of holiness that God has, and you who are unholy, if you touch it, you will die. That's just the nature of things. It can't be changed. Does this make sense? It's kind of like we think God can do everything. God cannot do everything. Did you know that? Because God cannot lie. Why not? Because that's the law of it. He's perfect. He can't lie. So our sins separate us from God, who is holy. Because he loved us, he wanted to reconcile us, up, reconcile us back to him. Well, how now that we are born again? Well, we receive the holiness of, of God, Jesus we receive the righteousness of Jesus that's imputed to us. So when I stand before God, he sees more than Jeffrey. He sees Jesus. Because Jesus has taken my place. I'm, I'm, I'm capable of standing before him because of what Jesus has done. And now I'm reconciled back to him. So God is holy and God is loving. Okay. And there's other attributes that he has. He's compassionate, right? He's, he's faithful. He's, I mean, he's gracious. We can go on and on and on, right? But one attribute doesn't negate the other attribute. And if we think, like, if we can't understand how he can be holy and just at the same time, I think we may not have a good understanding. But here's this, too. God is, is capable of doing something that we don't have the understanding of. He's capable of doing that because he's God. So let's pray. And uh, we don't have time for breakouts. So go ahead and hang out in here. Alex, are they done? All right. Do not leave until the parents get out. So just hang out in here. Um, and then we will start discipleship probably around 1235. So let's do this. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us after after this message, Lord, that you would continue to give us clarity and understanding and give us a good perception, Lord, of who you are. Lord, if there's anyone in here who has questions or misunderstandings, Lord, I pray that you would, you would bring about that understanding. Lord, that you would clarify things, that you would clean things up. Lord, I know that you can do the work and the Holy Spirit can do the work more than any man could ever explain anything. And so we just thank you for that and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.